This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF sponsor. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services, and our discussion today is not tied to sale investment products. The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Trades affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today, sort of a unique format for the first part of the, the show today. We're going to talk with Mark Chandler, who is the global head of currency strategy at Brown Brothers Harriman, a friend of the show, return guest. I always love getting Mark's views on what's going on in the global market. It's really a, a very broad world view. Uh, in the second half of the show, we're, we're going to have a replay from a conference that I attended and hosted a panel on emerging markets uh, at the Evidence-Based Investing Conference hosted by the Ritholtz Wealth Management Group and IMN uh, just a few weeks ago. Sort of very interesting discussion across emerging markets, sort of very timely with what's going on in the markets uh, you know, this year. Um, but let me, for the first part, Mark, welcome back to our program. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Uh, so maybe start off high-level worldview. A lot's going on in the markets. A lot going on in currencies. Um, you know, a lot, lot of rhetoric with politics, monetary policy. Maybe sort of start with top-down worldview. How are how are you looking at the world today? Yes, yeah, so I guess uh, I begin off by saying that I think that the market, um, or I shouldn't say the market yet, but many people seem to still be exaggerating what's going on with the trade. Uh, I fully acknowledge that the direction might not be so uh, positive, but the system is holding together. And by that, I mean that uh, look at what's, what's, what's happening this week. Uh, so we've got the world stock market. So the, the MSCI developed markets is up for the second week in a row, 2.2%. The emerging markets, the MSCI emerging market index is snapping uh, a couple week, a four week decline. And it's up 1.3% this week. Even China, which saw a seven-week decline, rallied 3% this week. So the stock market's not getting as excited as the newspaper and the op-ed writers are saying this is the end of globalization or the end of the West or the end of something. Yeah. No, you've written a lot on this topic. You have a book, Making Sense of the Dollar, Exposing Dangerous Myths About Trade and Foreign Exchange uh, and the Political Economy of Tomorrow. So you, you focus a lot on these issues. And you know, when you think about the trade issues that we're trying to negotiate, it's all very complicated. We don't still know how it's all going to play out, right? Like it's going to take time for us to negotiate to these final agreements and what does it actually look like? Is there you know, do, is the current going to be placed? Um, but how do you how do you view? Do you think the do you have a more optimistic view on how it all plays out, and that's why the markets are holding up, or do you think there's still a downside risk factor that it just goes really badly that people are expecting it to go better than it, it's currently uh, being pr- priced in? Uh, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, so far, I think that neither side, neither the U.S. or China, are really hurting each other. Uh, I see the capital economics the research group has predicted that the so far, without counting the auto, what's going to happen with the auto sector, which seems to be more aimed at what the U.S. used to think of as our allies, 
than China itself. But just based on what so far was happening, including this $200 billion uh, tariff, on, uh, 10% tariff on $200 billion of goods, might impact the Chinese economy by about half a percent and might impact the U.S. economy by about a quarter of a percent. So even if those numbers are a little bit on the low side, it still seems to be quite modest compared to the kind of damage and kind of hurt we can do to each other. So I think that in the, these kind of things I think of as a escalation ladder, and we're still at the very early rungs so far. And what that means, I think, is that um, I, I, it's funny, and your prelude to the show, you're saying how you just hosted a emerging market panel. I did too. Yeah. And I think one of your colleagues was on there. That's great. And uh, one of the uh, one of the things that came up was there was some some of the panel, not all of them, but some of them wanted to th- thought that maybe the emerging markets had value now. Maybe the big sell-off in risk assets created some value opportunities. And so I think that uh, I, I, my, my sense is that. Uh, this is what's happening right now is people think that things could get things may get worse, but even if they get a bit worse, uh, that it's going to hold together. Yeah. And and when you think about the, the rhetoric and just sort of the politics, if you try to take you know, like are you Republican, Democrat out of it and, and try to keep shy from that view. But, you know, when we've talked about like it, I think in some ways Trump has this argument on reciprocality and say, hey, we already have very low trade tariffs and all the people say well now you're instituting these other retaliatory uh metrics in a way don't we have the lowest rates and and his standing that we we just want you to get to reciprocal we want you to be at the same rate as us that seems like a very strong argument to me i found it sounds really good on the face of it but yeah. here's what happened it seemed in my understanding and i could be wrong about this but my understanding is that when countries join the wto they agree on a schedule of tariffs and the IMF and the WTO, they've got these schedules that would give you, like, the average effective tariff. So what are the goods that are really being traded, what's the tariff on those, and, like, weight them accordingly. And these kind of things don't show to be much a big outlier between the U.S., Europe, and Canada. We're talking about the biggest barriers to trade aren't tariffs. We're talking about, I think, I want to say that something like on a trade-weighted, uh, like a actual trade-weighted tariff basis, it's something like 1.6% in the U.S., Europe, and Canada. And so, yes, we can talk about different goods. Like, so, for example, uh, we, have, we in the U.S. have very low tariff on autos, but a very high tariff on SUVs. We also protect our dairy market. We protect our sugar market. And so it, it matters, like, how, like reciprocity yeah. in general but it can't be. It might not be on every individual product. Right. So when 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 you so when you, the trade is one of the big topics of conversation. The other that's going on this year has been just the rising rates from the sent from the feds for the, the balance sheet normalization. You've got Europe, Japan still doing, you know, QE. Although ECB is is winding down potentially. Uh, how do you think about this monetary policy divergence theme? Uh, that's one of the things we've talked with you about in the past. Like, what's your what's your view on just global central bank policy? What that means for interest rates for currencies? Yeah, so I'm still in the big camp of this divergence. I still think divergence has a ways to go. Uh, so uh, and so for me, I'd say there's three big forces driving the markets right now. One of them will be this monetary policy divergence. Uh, the second one is the policy mix in the U.S. And that's the uh, that's that's just talk about fiscal policy too. This tighter monetary policy, looser fiscal policy tends to be the like like steroids for a currency. This is what the U.S. had when Reagan Volcker. This is what Germany had when the Berlin Wall fell. And the, the West like had a leverage buyout for the East. This is a very explosive policy mix for the dollar. 
and it has all kinds of uh, effects of sorry, sucking capital into the U.S. And then the third issue I thought was a driver is really immigration. And by immigration, I'm really thinking about what's going on in Europe, but I also think it's what's partly behind, or at least it's not behind fully the uh, like where a lot of the energy comes from for Brexit, and that is a wanting to get control of the border, thinking that they want to get control of the borders from the EU, which is thought to be forcing them to have a lot of immigrants. Yeah. So now last year, I, I would say we, we were starting to get towards this policy mix. Maybe the full fiscal thrust wasn't there, but we had, I would have, I would agree with you in that, that sort of combination. And we got a very weak dollar environment. Some of that's coming back now. Certainly the second quarter was a very strong for the dollar. Um, and do you think that, was it just, when I look at it from last year, it was just politics going much better than expected in the Eurozone and that being one of the major factors. Any other explanation you have on last year and what could be the further catalyst this year for, for continuation of that theme? Well, I, th- I think you're right. That for me, that last year, the uh, going in, going coming out of Brexit in uh, in June of 2016, U.S. election uh, in 2016, and then people were afraid of all these European elections, and it became clear they weren't going to go this way, or that way. I should say the uh, uh, I'd say people were underweight the European assets and had to had to jump back in. But that it was it seemed to me like a largely a one-off portfolio adjustment. And I think that uh, what, what I worry about is that. Uh, ECB has already told us they're not going to raise interest rates for a full year. By the time they raise interest rates, what, by the time they try to raise interest rates, what if the economy has lost some of its momentum? And, you know, that's what's happened this week for the first time in this cycle is that so uh, uh, I, I, I talked to a lot of our clients, and a lot of people were interested in when will the Fed funds rate, what level will it peak at? And now I'm beginning to hear more talk, more thinking about when will the first cut come and so this year, this week, for the first time, the December 20, 2020 Eurodollar futures contract, that implied yield, fell below the end of 2019 futures contract. Mm-hmm. First time the market's beginning to price in something like the end of the Fed cycle, beginning of the cut. Is that, uh, is that consistent with your view? Do you think it's, it's at a 2020 situation where we have to start cutting rates? Yeah, I'm thinking that we're really still late cycle, uh, and that there's this fiscal stimulus is giving us this last like push, and that the uh, things like those late cycle things, things that uh, your listeners could track themselves as well, is like a 12 month moving average of non farm payrolls. This tends to peak in the middle of a cycle. It peaked in 2015. I find that the uh, auto autos are also cyclical. Uh, 12 month moving average of auto sales uh, peaked in 2016. I'm also seeing like credit card delinquency rates beginning to rise, also late cycle, uh, typically before the U.S. has a downturn. Not only does the yield curve flatten or get inverted, but also we get a spike in oil prices. So, so I'm seeing like the, so the constellation, if you will, are beginning to align, but not for right away because I do, I do agree that this fiscal stimulus is large and we still have uh, say some in the system to work its way through. So... When you, when you think about how you, how that ties into these different currency views, I mean, does it sound like you're still in that pro-dollar camp, given that that combination that's still there, or and and this divergence theme, or do you have a more mixed view because of that? Hey, now we're going to start focusing on when we start cutting rates. Like, what's how do you put that together? Yeah, so so yeah, I think that's a hard thing for a lot of investors, and I know I, I find it's always a challenge is keeping the different time frames. Sometimes you you think you're losing on what should be a short-term trade, it becomes a longer-term investment, and so. Uh, so I, I try to keep the time frames different. So in the, in the short run, I think that uh, last couple of weeks, we've had a pullback in the dollar. 
And that pullback in the dollar, I think, has run its course. And now I think we're beginning the next leg up for the dollar. Uh, I think that uh, before this is over, I still think we're going to get closer to parity on the euro. And I think that uh, we'll still see uh, sterling come under more pressure. In this kind of mix, though, I find that the Canadian dollar typically does better on the crosses in a strong U.S. dollar environment. And, and say, starting as of, say, the second half of this year, the Bank of Canada might be the only major central bank that can keep up with the Fed in tightening. If the Fed goes twice here in the second half, like at least the latest dot plots suggest, uh, Bank of Canada seems they can go one more time after raising rates this past week. And part of that, they've been sort of boosted by a little bit of the oil recently. Any other any other views of how that interacts with with view on oil? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I'm. Uh, it's, it's, it's ironic with the oil, though. I think is that uh, you know the problems, some of the problems with supply coming from Libya, uh, coming from anticipation of Iran, uh, is partly uh, fostered by the U.S. And we've got uh, gasoline prices now at four-year highs. So it, for me, this is another late-cycle development. But what I find what I find interesting too, though, is that the U.S. Uh, could be next year the could be the biggest energy producer. And the uh, and on the other hand, what what I'm going to be fascinated by starting really September is I believe that is when the you know China launched that uh, RMB based uh, oil futures contract earlier this year, and I believe in September they'll begin having physical delivery. And so I think this is going to be a it's going to be a boost not so much for the RMB being a uh, reserve currency or anything like that. I'm thinking much more along the lines as another vehicle or a channel in which Iran could get oil out. Uh, despite a U.S. embargo. Hmm. So bringing up China, I mean, we talked a little bit on, on the trade issues for China. And, you know, we, we, start, we started off talking a little bit about, you know, the sort of weakness in EM currencies generally this year. Any view on how on, on China's outlook towards uh, the, the implications for the rest of emerging markets and, and how, you, how you view China there? Yeah, I think that, you know, what a lot of people, I think, are uh, seeing is like a, a wave of a, just a rising protectionism. And that, that is definitely what's getting the headlines. But on the other hand, what's going to happen is I think that these tariffs are going to change trade patterns. So give you an example. Even though the U, China and the U.S. are raising tariffs against each other, China is cutting its tariffs against some other Asian countries. Uh, so they, they can begin supplying some of the goods that maybe the U.S. has been providing. Uh, there's a great story on uh, Bloomberg about how uh, uh, now that U.S. soybeans may be too expensive for the Chinese, uh, that the uh, Brazilians are happy to take our soy and use that for their own domestic purposes and then export their good soy. And so uh, uh, I, I, so I'm, I'm thinking that the Chinese economy is, going to, is slowing down, and we're going to see some numbers next week that are going to show a little bit further of a slowdown from the Chinese economy. They're wrestling, though, with they're trying to like change the car tire while the car is still going, trying to encourage a deleveraging in this kind of environment while the economy is slowing down. So I think China does have some serious challenges. But I, I sort of worry that even if China were to, were to uh, do what you were suggesting before, to adopt the same level of tariffs the U.S. did, if they were to do that overnight, I'm afraid that, one, it would not be good enough for the U.S., and secondly, it wouldn't really solve our problems. The problem is that China is not forcing the U.S. to have a trade deficit. We're having a trade deficit. We run a chronic current account deficit because we, we live beyond our means as a country. We, don't, we, we give ourselves a basket of goods that we don't tax ourselves for, and we end up having to borrow that money. And so I think that even if these 
I mean, the U.S. right now has a sort of victim attitude. Everybody's picking on us. But I wonder if if, uh, if everybody did what we want them to do, whether we would still have our own problems. Yeah, no, and I, I, I get that point. I, we had a, an interesting, somebody running for... Um uh, for for this for I want to say for a house seat uh, for house and seat in Congress from the fourth district here in Pennsylvania a few weeks ago, and he was commenting on the China situation on on aluminum and the aluminum tariffs and saying you know the reason why it looks like China's well why why he in his view you know they're supporting the market he's just, they're giving free energy essentially to these aluminum producers that's like the biggest cost of production in a lot of the aluminums so there's some of this back story things that we don't always see the full picture on if that's a true statement that you know they're supporting aluminum with that 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 kind of support yeah, no, I think that's really the problem is that the biggest barriers, and that's I think was was brought out too, is a lot of things that the U.S. complains about are not necessarily illegal under the WTO, and that's the challenge is that a lot of the some of these practices, uh, unfair subsidies, uh, sometimes might not be illegal but still unfair, and I think that's the so, so I, I kind of think that under a different uh, regime that uh, I think that you'd find that not only Republicans and Democrats in the U.S. could be united behind it, but many countries in the world would be united behind this idea that China has taken unfair advantage of the system. So it reminds me of a story, uh, you know, uh, uh, an article in the Foreign Affairs a couple months ago by Graham Allison, who's a, uh, I think he's at the Kennedy School of Government. We've had him uh, on the show about the yep. uh, Thucydides trap and uh, the rise of China versus the U.S. and how that's all yeah, going to play exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah, I think, that's a, I think that's just an interesting uh, perspective that, uh, let's just take a step back from the uh, the nuances and take a look at like the big picture what's happening. Yeah, we have about two minutes left uh, for this segment here, Mark. Any you know we any parts of emerging markets you think uh, people should be paying attention to? You think that sort of sold off with all of this discussion that might be opportunities that that you'd be be looking at? Uh, I think it's too early for Turkey. I'm afraid that uh, on this emerging market panel, I think that there was one agreement among, I mean, what are the chances of, of uh, four or five economists all agreeing, but they all agreed they didn't like Turkey. Uh, I, I, I like the Brazil story, though I think we have to get through the election. Uh, in general, though, I think that uh, emerging markets is an asset class that is going to suffer a while longer, even if there's value there. I think they've got to get the deeper value. Uh, but I think that that's the way the measure, I think, is not so much if an emerging market can be immune to these kinds of cyclical pressures, but how fast it can bounce back. And uh, I'm, I'm actually, it might be an outlier now, but I'm, I'm a bit optimistic on Mexico. Uh, I think that the, uh, the idea that AMLO is a closet socialist, I don't think does, does him justice. And, uh, and, and so any, any views on what, what, uh, what the catalyst there is? Do people just come in and see view that they're not going to do anything that, that negative for the economy? Well, I think that because, yeah, yeah that would be my sense is that uh, the, the, excluding for the energy sector, I think we'll see that most of his uh, program will be acceptable by international investors. What he's going to do with the energy is a different story if he, if he tries to unwind some of the, the reforms. Very good. Uh, Mark Chandler, a BBH currency strategist. Uh, always a pleasure catching up with, with what you've been doing, your views on the markets. Thanks for, uh, for joining us on the call today. Thank you very much. Good luck to everybody. We've been, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. The next segment, we're going to be talking emerging markets at the Ritholtz Wealth Management Conference, IMN. Uh, we had a panel on emerging markets with, uh, with Crane Chairs, Vanek, uh, and the Austria Stock Exchange. Really interesting views, I think. You know, we talked a little bit at the top of the show here about China and trade. Uh, there was a lot of interesting views on the opportunity long run from the China consumer sectors, their internet. We talked a lot about Facebook and the FANG stocks in the U.S., sort of that segment for China. 
Times. Really interesting to talk about currencies, see opportunities there. Uh, really interesting show on the second half of the program here. Welcome back to Behind the Markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. In this half hour, we're going to play back highlights of a panel discussion I moderated at the 2018 IMN Global Indexing and ETF Conference in Dana Point, California. The Ritholtz Wealth Management crew puts on a great group of advisors and attracts a great audience to learn and network with. I hope to see you at their next event back east. We have three great panels here for the discussion. We have Brendan Ahern of, of Crane Shares, Fran Rodoloso of Van Eck, Matthias Sabo of the Vienna Stock Exchange. I'm going to let them tell a little bit about their personal story, how they got to their, each of their individual firms, what makes them an expert for our topic here, talk about allocating to emerging markets, what each of them focuses on in their, in their day jobs. But Brendan, maybe we start with you. Tell us a little bit about your personal story, how you got to Crane Shares. Okay. Uh, I had spent 13 years with the largest uh, ETF provider globally. I had been hired by them in early 2001 during the rollout. And um, I met our founder, John Crane, who had lived in China and wanted to develop a uh, suite of ETFs focused on new China thematics that he experienced how China's economy was evolving away from the traditional drivers. He also experienced living in China, that China was opening up access to their onshore markets. And uh, when John really articulated his vision, I I thought it from the perspective of of a passive investor, uh, that I've always believed that the most important firm in finance today is MSCI with 13.9 trillion benchmarks. Uh, to their indices, both active and passive, and yet how many of ETF users really understand their global investable market indices methodology? And my view was this inclusion of China's onshore market is is going to change people's portfolios. You You might not ever buy crane shares, but your allocation to China is going to uh, increase in a very, uh, so I I quit my job. Uh, In hindsight, I should have gotten myself fired because I would have gotten a great little pay package. Uh, we started the firm with no clients, no assets, no brand five years ago. Um, and we're, I call it like the five-year overnight success. Uh, anyone who's built a business or a book of business, it's really hard. Uh, but we're up to about $2.5 billion U.S. Um, we have one of the best performing, or, you know, best performing China strategies up 70% last year. It gets its five-year track record focus on internet and e-commerce. Gets its five-year track record August 1st. Largest China ETF in the U.S. is up 45%. We're up over 160. Uh, we launched our MSCI China A inclusion. Uh, so this is the definition of China. Uh, over four years ago, that ETF is now the largest MSCI China A ETF globally. And so we've tried to skate to where the puck is going, that, that we want to get you know, we know China's 30% of EM will be over 40, has the potential to be over 50, 60%. Um, our greatest value add is, it, it, it's not product, it's, it's providing the research to allow people to make an educated investment decision, knowing these changes are coming, and then they are coming as we speak, uh, both equities as well as uh, fixed, fixed income is another one. We're going to drill into all those issues in a lot of greater detail, very top, great topics there. Matthias, do you want to tell a little bit about yourself? Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Matthias Savo. I don't have 20 or 25 years of experience in the indexing business, but um, I used to briefly work for Deutsche Bank in the M&A business, covering the German-speaking uh, countries, um, then moved to uh, an Austrian private bank to set up and run a capital markets business for small and medium enterprises, quite a niche, by the way. and. Um, Last year, I joined Vienna Stock Exchange. Vienna Stock Exchange is a 
a fully-fledged independent exchange in the heart of Europe. Um, we do have a traditional, besides the traditional stock exchange business with listing and trading, we have a market data and indexing business, as well as uh, featuring IT services um, and some other business lines as well. I'm responsible for the uh, index licensing business of Vienna Stock Exchange, as well as the development of the international debt listing business, um, mainly focused on Europe. Um, um, with respect to the indexing business, uh, Vienna Stock Exchange was one of the first providers uh, with a yeah, broad product range on the Central Eastern European economies. Uh, this is something I would like to shed some light on uh, today. Um, so we are basically covering Central Eastern Europe, CEE in short, and Russia as well. Um, yeah, and together with our innovation-based uh, joint venture partner, strategic partner, Limeyard, um, quite newly founded, is a Swiss uh, index provider. We are also uh, expanding into the kind of global customized indexing business. Fran, maybe tell a little bit how you got to Van Eck and what you focus on. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Fran Rodoloso uh, from Van Eck in New York. I manage the uh, fixed income ETF portfolio management area. Uh, I've been doing that for the last six years at Van Eck. I'm actually, uh, I guess in, in bond market terms, a repo. I had been at Van Eck for eight years uh, previously, uh, with a couple of years in between. Uh, I have been in the market for... 26 years, and uh, although our ETF suite on the fixed income side uh, has uh, a lot of assets in the emerging markets area, it spans other areas, including U.S. and global high yield, some components of U.S. investment grade, green bonds, and also a large uh, municipal bond suite. Uh, my traditional expertise and why I've ended up at Van Eck has been in the emerging markets uh, space and credit within emerging markets. I spent... Uh, most of my now 26 or so year career uh, as either a sell-side trader or portfolio manager on active funds uh, dealing mostly with distressed debt in emerging markets. Uh, it's really interesting to be on the passive and ETF side, uh, wrappers that represent liquidity uh, in markets that people are generally quite concerned about what the long-term ramifications are going to be of the ETF development. Uh, but I think I bring an interesting perspective to that, also to the emerging markets arena. Um, less so, by the way, to Asia. Emerging markets in the 90s when I started was dominated by Latin America. That happened to be uh, my major in college were Latin American studies and sort of the, uh, the wonders of underdevelopment. Uh, but now Asia is becoming, has over many years become a larger and larger part of the debt indexes uh, in emerging markets, as it should, being the largest part of the emerging uh, economies. So I think we could touch on a lot of different issues with this group here. So one could be the short-term tactical stuff on the China A-shares, the China Internet. But let's talk first the highest level question, why allocate to emerging markets? So I look around the world, you look at just a general cap-weighted, you could buy one strategy, the Acqui, and be done. And that would be roughly 50% US, 40% developed, maybe 10, 11% emerging markets. Maybe what's the case to be overweight or to be allocated to emerging markets? Maybe Fran, and from a, a high level, start with you. You know, the issues under pressure today, EM is under pressure this year, a lot coming from credit. When you look at what's happening in the fixed income markets, a lot of people think rising rates, Fed hiking is going to be bad for emerging markets. Do you agree with that? What do you, what, what's the case to be overweight in emerging markets today? Uh, yeah, well, 
High, higher interest rates haven't always been bad for emerging markets. It's always a matter of context. Uh, things like interest rate differentials haven't, in fact, even driven flows away from emerging markets. Uh, in many rate-rising environments that have been characterized by strong global growth, uh, emerging markets have been quite a good place to be. And the dollar uh, has been really a part of the story, or the, or the currency movements, uh, particularly among some, some of the weaker emerging countries, but, but all emerging market countries have been swept up in sort of a, uh, a big reversal versus the dollar the last three to six months. We hear about really the last three months. We hear a lot about, oh, you know, higher rates in the U.S., uh, U.S. growth now up, you know, starting to be the engine of global growth. EM is still the engine, and, and, and so back to the rationalization. Emerging markets is, is an engine of growth. Uh, it has generally been a place to be debt and equity uh, when uh, global growth is strong. The dollar, despite rising rates in many of those environments, has not strengthened versus emerging market currencies. Uh, just from a debt point of view, static uh, point of view as well. Uh, so the path over the next five to 10 years will be important, but we're talking about uh, half the debt to GDP of developed markets. A very small percentage now is actually dollar or hard currency debt, mostly in their own currencies uh, that emerging market countries have, have issued. Uh, we're talking about normal interest rate environments in these countries, despite some high volatility recently. What I mean by that are uh, conventional central bank policies that don't necessarily need to be unwound. We're talking about positive real interest rates. Uh, so from, a, from just a static, you know, take a snapshot point of view, actually a, a healthier starting point uh, than some of the developed markets where uh, a navigation away from quantitative easing, uh, zero interest rate policies, et cetera, need to be navigated. Now, that exit of those developed markets are what will also drive flows, and that's really the big, the big question you have to ask is how does that create opportunities in emerging markets and when is it best to add? Now, it's hard to see emerging markets doing well without China, Brendan, right? So that's like the sort of key thing that drives all of the sentiment towards emerging markets it tends to be surrounding China. What's your macro story? I mean, I just saw Bloomberg's story this morning that they're going to do some reserve cuts, mm -hmm. trying to free up liquidity to help the banking system. But do you, what's your sense? How is China doing? Uh, so my colleague Bill Fagan and I, uh, Bill Fagan is here, and uh, we just got back from China. So we spent a week meeting with our research partners, institutional brokers. Uh, China is deliberately slowing their economy to address environmental concerns. Uh, overcapacity in steel, aluminum, and coal. Are, those uh, high-polluting industries are being shut down, and that's slowing the economy. China is also tightening monetarily in order to cut uh, debt to GDP. Um, and that's where uh, overnight the uh, bank reserve requirement ratio cut was done. Uh, banks in China still have to hold 16% of deposits. Uh, so there's a, you know, 50 bips, uh, much more than here. Uh, so, you know, China is trying to get in front of the debt issue. It's recognized and the majority of that bank reserve requirement cut was to free up cash to turn debt, non-performing loans into equity positions. So China's aware of the debt issue and they're doing something about it. So um, ultimately, China is a big country and its economy is very big. Um, and parts of China are doing very, very well. I mean, the sector dispersion last year in, within China was over 70%. The best performing sector was up 60%, the worst was 11. So your definition of China determines your results. And the part of China that's doing well are these new economy. The government is supporting, and, and you look at the earnings of companies like Alibaba, 
know, Alibaba, $517 billion market cap, they grew revenue 60% last quarter. Tencent, $480 billion market cap, grew their revenue almost 50%. So if you're oriented to the consumer, things are looking very good. If you're oriented to this old part of the economy, not so good. Banks and the energy companies. Matthias, when you think about Eastern Europe and, and, and the role of Russia, it tends to be a focus in a lot of those type of indexes. Maybe talk about just where Eastern Europe stands and the different looks of, of really, whether it's mm. diversified exposures with Russia or, or how you guys look at it at the Vienna Stock Exchange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, interesting when looking at Central Eastern Europe is that it's not, it's not really a new emerging market. It's an old emerging market. When we look at uh, before the crisis, it was really uh, in the focus of investors and markets were driven up. Um, was a bit of a victim uh, due to the financial crisis. They quietly um, um, catched up or caught up, sorry. Um, but to, to, to uh, make the bridge from China, I may quote that the Chinese foreign minister, I think it was in March this year, uh, who called the, the Central Eastern European economies, particularly Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, to be the most dynamic force in the EU. And one may say, okay, this is, has something to do with political changes in those countries. They're moving towards more conservative parties. But the fact is that they are doing quite well. So they've been doing quite well for several years. And it's kind of a region providing a, a hybrid uh, between uh, stability of uh, uh, well-grown countries and economies, but still offering access to emerging, uh, to, to sectors uh, in, in the emerging markets area, I would say, uh, probably private consumption, strong domestic uh, private consumption, strong infrastructure, and, and they, they basically benefit from the European single market, of course. Um, they are all uh, European members. Uh, without having the currency, but relatively uh, relatively stable uh, currencies for an emerging market. And um, I mean, we're talking about GDP growth rates of well above 4%, which compared to China might not be uh, <laughs> competitive in this regard. But uh, when we look at the Eurozone, they uh, absolutely outperformed uh, the the Western European countries. And um, one of the very interesting signs or promising signs is that the EU Commission uh, just announced that the EU cohesion funding will be reduced. So those Central Eastern uh, European economies will receive 20% less money. And that's actually a good sign because when they joined this, the European uh, Union, uh, they received cohesion funding to develop further and so on. And now that they received 20% less money from the European Union, shows that the economies are doing quite well, but as I said, still offering uh, kind of access to those uh, uh, better growth rates. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about Poland, for example, the largest economy in Central Eastern Europe. Um, Czech Republic, Hungary, and to a certain extent, Austria is an indirect investment because there has been a, a historically close ties with the Eastern European 
countries, and um, we look at the financial sector, of course. We're talking about the ultra-low interest rate policy at the moment, which is probably, probably coming to an end by mid-2019, at least as indicated by the European Central Bank. Um, and they keep posting better, or they are starting to post better results right of now. We'll come back to Austria, but let me um, go to, to, to Fran here. On, when you think about how you started on the, the broad case for EM and sort of the pressures from rising rates, within fixed income, there's been really interesting you think of equities as the most volatile, but this year, the EM local fixed income is down more than equities, um, marginally. I mean, it's a lot of it's the currency move. How do you think at Van Eck between the local currency, the dollar-denominated bonds, you have the sovereigns in local currency, you have sovereigns in dollar-denominated, you have corporates, you have high yield. How do you think about all this fixed income and, and really where are the opportunities today? Uh, yeah, we, we do think of them as separate asset classes. Uh, we have uh, you know, built products around indexes in, in each of those spaces, uh, some very broad, some a little differentiated from what was uh, already out there, um, including, we, we think it's worthwhile looking at it in the aggregate just to add diversification because there are some years where the hard currency debt may perform better, some years where the local currency debt may perform better, and they might not even be that highly correlated depending upon the currency movement. So there really are separate asset classes to a, de to a degree at least with, with separate dynamics. Local currency debt, these are, uh, the interest rates on local currency debt are largely influenced by uh, central bank policy, inflation, growth uh, in the countries at issue. The interest rates on dollar-denominated debt are based on U.S. rates and a credit spread. Uh, so that credit spread may, may be influenced by some of the things that are going on in local markets, uh, but they can have very different dynamics. Interestingly, until this last wave of uh, currencies getting hit the last two to three weeks, uh, dollar-denominated sovereign debt was underperforming local currency debt, even after the currencies had, had reversed. Because they were um, big duration, right? A lot of these dollar-denominated, some of them are 10-year duration. Is yeah. that, that's fair on some of the indexes. That's, that's fair. Uh, duration is hurt, but also, you know, big weights, relatively large weights in, in the likes of Turkey and, and Argentina. Argentina is a much smaller weight in the local currency indexes, generally speaking. Uh, corporate debt uh, is actually... You would think, oh my God, if this is what's happening to sovereigns, what's happening to corporates? Dollar-denominated corporate debt has been the least bad place to be in EM uh, so far this year. Uh, and again, much like the equity market, you'd be surprised sometimes at the uh, the diversification in terms of sectors. The number, you know, 50 some odd countries are represented in corporate indexes. It's actually the most diversified part of, of EM, and there are a lot of different dynamics, a lot of idiosyncratic dynam dynamics, particularly on the high-yield corporate side, uh, that can help drive returns. It's still a heavy financials component, but much less energy and other commodity-related sectors than you think within the corporate. So um, we definitely think of it as, as looking at, at multiple asset classes, certainly with some shared trades, but they could have different risk characteristics at different points in time. And we do think the currencies have become the story uh, and they should become the value story uh, at, at, at some point. Uh, you, it may be difficult to pick a bottom in, in a Turkey or in Argentina, but when you look at the asset class more broadly, particularly when you see countries, even in Argentina, that's pursuing some actually market-friendly policies uh, and, and taking some hard steps in order to improve their situation uh, that you would hope eventually the market would, would reward them. 
when do you think people will adopt the aggregate approach? I mean, do, it's, it, this broad beta solution is going everywhere else. The, and fixed income generally by the ag. What, will they ever buy the EM total ag solution? Uh, it's, a, it's a really great question, and I, I think it's, it, I think yes. I, I, if you look at emerging market ETFs, passive and emerging markets in general, sure they've grown a lot. Some of the dollar sovereigns are well yeah. over you know, 10 billion now. Uh, they're local uh, in the U.S. There's one between four and five billion. There's there's probably ten, a couple I mean the five to six billion range in Europe in terms of local market ETFs. But it's very small compared to the active, uh, actively managed emerging market funds in, in in debt. And I think the hurdle for people to cross again is accepting the benefits of diversification of that beta exposure when you like the asset class as an allocation tool, uh, but institutional investors really drive the big flows into and unfortunately out of ETFs at times. Uh, and they still, for the most part, have a, uh, what is it, a preference for actively managed uh, funds within the emerging market space, particularly when you talk about the local versus hard or sovereign versus corporate decision. It's changing now. They're, they're using uh, at least for the individual asset classes, they're using more and more passive institutional investors are. As you create some smarter indexes that perhaps they, uh, <laughs> you know, you can, you can replace some of these active managers. It is one of these narratives out there that you must use an active manager. Yeah. But as you're showing in China, you know, it, 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 it's very different China exposure when you look at just cap-weighted total market mm -hmm. China with a lot of the banks and energy companies versus the China internet or things that sort of underweight the, uh, the banks and energy. What's maybe compare where you think China Internet is versus the Fang stocks? I mean that everybody's talking about Fang, but yeah. where, how do you see the valuations on the China stocks? Given they are growing, and I, I look at the numbers too myself, and it's probably double U.S. growth rates the last five years. Yeah, I mean they, um, I mean China you know, has urbanized. Twenty percent of China lived in cities in 1980. It's over fifty percent. So so. Um, you know, you've got this urban middle class, and uh, you know, two years ago I, I spoke, I was speaking uh, to an investor, and you know, did our usual thing, and, and they said we don't believe you. So I took him to China, and and we, I, we, I brought him to Tianhong Asset Management, which is the mutual fund family of Alibaba. So you're like, what's the Amazon of China doing with a fund family? But they bought a mutual fund that be like having a money market fund on your Amazon Prime account, where you can just leave money. Uh, that's the largest money market fund globally today. Um, it's got about 300 billion in, in, in aggregate assets, bigger than the JP uh, US Treasury. Has over 300 million individual investors. But the funny thing is, so we're in Beijing, we're in this office building at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning. And we go to the security desk and I pull, we're, we all pull out, our, we pull out our wallets and you know, to get our, show our ID and our, um, our friend from Tianhong was like, oh, you must be Brendan. And I was like, well, you know, how did you know? And, uh, they were like, come on, seriously, like, you're in the lobby of uh, a Chinese office building, like, you weren't hard to pick out. Uh, but they said, the main reason is because you have this. And she said, in China, sorry, all I need is this. That what, that what do I have in here? I have, I have cash, I have my ID, I got my credit card, my ATM. And, and in China, I've got my little train ticket, but in China, everyone has their driver's license on the back of, of their cell phone, because this is your ATM, this is your credit card, um, it's how you communicate, and um, 
you know, retail, online retail sales in China grew 32% last year, versus, which is twice what it grew here. Online sales in China, 20% versus less than nine here. The most amazing thing is, um, you know, Alibaba has this uh, big sales day, singles day, November 11th. They sold $25 billion worth of goods. Now that's crazy. They sold over 100,000 cars. To me, that's even crazier. The most amazing thing is 90% of that 25 billion was transacted over a cell phone. I mean, that, that is wild. And that's where, what, what's happening over there is they're leapfrogging over this big box retailer stage um, and they're going straight to it happening online. And, and that, that's where, you know, well, these, these companies grow into infinity. Of course not, you know, that's where people get in trouble. You drag the little Excel and- But they're not that expensive today. So relatively, they're on a forward-looking basis. Uh, they're not, they're not, you know, they're, they're not cheap. I mean, these are, like FANG, these are growth companies. You pay for that growth, but they're growing at twice the rate of FANG. And so, uh, uh, we, are, we are very optimistic. I mean, there'll be bumps in the roads, but we're, we're very positive on the space. Now, the big transition is the MSCI adding A shares, which A shares, I was looking at the A shares index for MSCI that it's actually down this year, which is what everybody thinks they're adding them. These things must be rising. Um, any commentary? Now, they're adding only small brief parts for people who don't follow the day-to-day -day news of this. They add, they're adding about 5% inclusion factor this year. Mm -hmm. Part of it just happened in June. More of it's happening later. What do you think is having the A shares and, and do you expect that to be, like, how do you quickly do you think they'll add A shares and wh what do you think the end state ends up? I mean, um, the most important benchmark institution is MSCI, All Country World Index. United States largest economy in the world, 53% of that index. China's second largest economy in the world, 3.6%. Um, you have twice as much exposure to Japan, even though their GDP is half as much, and you have as much exposure to the United Kingdom and France even though their GDPs are one quarter size. So you know, I quit my job, we built this company because that is gonna change. And MSCI um, on June 1st and then September 1st is adding uh, these 220 plus names that, that we've owned for years. Um, um, but China will go from 30% of MSCI EM to over 40%. Uh, I think it'll take three to five years. I then believe within the next five to 10 years, South Korea goes from EM to developed. That 15% will get redistributed. Over 10% of that will go to China. China will be over 50%. Taiwan, which is 12% of EM, also meets uh, uh, the main criteria for developed markets, which is GDP per capita. Um, that, that's what determines what's EM. I mean, there's other criteria. If Taiwan also goes, that 12% position, 10% of it goes to China. China's over 60%. I mean, that's, that's why we built this company. And that's, that's you know, why people are gonna need a friend in the China business, and you know, we hope to earn that trust. It's gonna be interesting <laughs> how they navigate all, the, you would think they're gonna put some caps and concentration and how they do it over, this, this line between developed and EM, maybe it, it blurs, but people still, to this point on the all access, like do people just buy, XUS, they buy these regions, and how you know maybe the XUS concepts become more important. I, I mean, I think asset, you know, China becomes an asset class. On fixed income, JPEM debt has a country cap of ten percent. China's bond market, third largest bond market in the world, global ag, city sovereign, JPM debt zero, Briefly. eleven trillion, and then you know uh, JP does do a country cap of ten percent, right. um, but that that's coming on the horizon. When when they add it, if it were uncapped, it would be thirty four percent of their third. uncapped index. 
We have about eight minutes on the clock. Maybe we'll just briefly see, check the audience. Uh, I can keep going, but let's see just where, where other people, uh, what they've heard they want to sort of ask on. I, I was wondering if you could comment on politics. Um, certainly Xi Jinping, Erdogan now has, uh, has, has won in Turkey, and Obrador seems to be the, the next one up in Mexico. Yeah. Very, very different politics than what we've seen in the past. And I was yeah. wondering if you feel, one, that if you agree that this is very a, a, a change in politics, and two, of course, how you think that impacts especially um, emerging market equities. So pop, the populist, populist movement started in Thailand in 2000. Putin, Adragan, uh, Duarte in the Philippines, and, and now uh, Mexico. Um, and um, yeah, people down in Mexico are, are worried, you know, finance people. And uh, um, you know, Xi uh, didn't, you know, I don't think will serve a third term, um, but he, uh, you know, one, this one has a very strong view on what he wants China to become, and he's kind of cleared the decks of competitors. And uh, part of our belief is China can be very transparent on policies, and we built our products based on understanding those views. I don't I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but clearly populism is gonna add volatility to portfolios globally. And it's, it's, that's, that's not just happening in, yeah. in, um, in China, it's happening everywhere, you know, particularly in Eastern Europe. Europe. I mean, what's happening in Eastern Europe uh, should make people, I think, a little nervous uh, with some of the what, folks. What's your sense on the European politics? Yeah, that's, that's true. What, what Brandon says, we, we do have uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. We have a, a, a Polish conservative uh, party. Um, to be honest, there are, <laughs> or there's um, as much, um, um, there are as much problems as in Western Europe when we look at Italy as well and Spain. I mean, those problems or those difficulties are spreading around, as you said. It's, it's kind of globally, but when we look at Eastern Europe, of course, we do have some conservative parties uh, coming across the corner or around the corner. Um, still, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. It will add to, to volatility, definitely. Yeah. For, for better or worse, in Latin America, at least you could say a, a left-leaning populist leader is not a new thing. Uh, <laughs> so uh, but the good news is, uh, many of the countries have survived that. A big question are checks on power, uh, I think, at least. And in the case of Mexico, uh, we think there still will be something uh, you know, of, of, a, of a process uh, in future elections that will, uh, will protect the country for the, for the long term. AMLO from a decade ago appears to be a different candidate. We don't know until uh, he's, he's in office. His, economy minister, finance minister proposed one, uh, seems to be a more market-friendly choice. Uh, what's going on in Turkey, you have to question if the checks on power exist any longer or, or if they can, uh, and that's probably much greater uh, medium to long-term concern at this point. I would like to go back to China. I mean, you have been, you have been talking about all of these great things happening there, the uh, GDP growing at 6%, I think it's second after India technology, they are competing with the United States. You just talked about your, uh, your uh, experience in the lobby where that woman, I believe, showed you 
we use this, we don't use this anymore. Aside from the rule of law, I understand that might be a very big factor. Can you talk to us about the factors that are keeping China in the emerging markets index? So can you open the hood, so to speak, and tell us about these factors? What do they need to do to go from the emerging market index to a developed market index? You're talking about South Korea. How about China? When is it going to happen? So the, the primary determinant is GDP per capita, uh, which is, uh, you know, you need to be above, I think it's about $15,000 US. So China's at $9,000 today, GDP per capita. Uh, MSCI does incorporate, um, if we want to buy Samsung on the COSPI, uh, I, you know, we, we are required to use a local broker for FX. That there's, MSCI is built for foreign investors going into you know, these other markets, so they take into consideration rules, regulations, and, and that's what's kept kind of a South Korean Taiwan in EM. Um, Israel did go up um, a few years ago. Uh, from EM to developed just last week, uh, Saudi Arabia and Argentina were, were added to EM equities next year. So, so the, the, the definition does change. For China, it, it's just more of China's just, it, it's so much bigger than, than the other EM. You know, GDP, population, uh, and, and now numerically, I mean, the definition of China is 447 stocks. South Korea is 119, uh, Taiwan's 92, India's 80. Um, I did spend the last hour double checking that. <laughs> um, uh, so, so China, China just is so much bigger, and 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 maybe you know that's part of our thesis is that it has to be carved out of EM because China already is bigger than all of uh, Latin America. You know, it's already bigger than all of Eastern Europe. Um, it, it's, it's just so much, but GDP per capita is the criteria. And that's all we have time for. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and you've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. A special thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, and my sound engineer, Daniel Bruno, who did a great editing job. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.